If you want to be good at writing, I don't understand why this is controversial to say, but every time I tell people this is how you become good at writing, they say I'm wrong and they say, oh, I don't have time to do that. But the trick is reading. Read good stories. Look at the story critically and go, why is this good? And don't read strictly fiction. About half of what I consume is nonfiction. I read history books, philosophy, uh, biographies. I sit on YouTube binges about breakthroughs in nuclear fusion technology. Uh, you know, I, I go down rabbit holes on how does uh, natural language processing artificial intelligence work. And I, I research whatever catches my fancy because I never know what will be useful. And more information I jam into my brain, the richer a world I can create in the story. Welcome back to the Unreal Press Podcast. In its first and foremost discussion of transgressive fiction, online culture, and everything from 4chan that's actually good. And as always, I am your host, Ella Labouchet. And I, today I am being joined by this nice glass of Jameson Caskmates, Doubt Flavor. It's, you know, your standard bottle of Jameson whiskey, but they've aged it in a cask that formerly had stout. It tastes exactly like the normal stuff and costs $5 more. But what is great value for money is Faceless by James Craig, and that's what we're talking about today. In fact, it was such great value for money, I enjoyed it in everything, that I got James Craig on to tell me why you should enjoy it too. Welcome, bro. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for reading my book. So, man. First of all, one thing I want to know. What is this book? Like, I mean, obviously I've read it, I've read the blurb, but I put it down and thought, how do I classify this? Where does it, you know, slot in? What genre would you classify this as, man? And how do you see, you know, the basic plot? Well, the answer to that I give is, it's a murder mystery, isn't it? But it's a murder mystery where arguably the city is... Well, I don't think, yeah, I don't think I've read one of those before. Closest I, I could say is, Probably the Kramer and Zonda mysteries, but even then, those did not happen in a cyberpunk dystopia. Those happened in, you know, the historical dystopia of part that era South Africa. It's a different ball game entirely. So, how is the city then the killer? I mean, if I remember correctly, didn't the guy die of an overdose? Well, without getting into spoilers completely, because it is a murder. There was a guy responsible for it, and that's, that's the entire premise of what Detective Elliot Blackstone is looking into. Um, but the, the reason you're, I think you struggle to classify it is because uh, the, the mechanism of murder has to do with the premise of the story. Uh, and that is the character in this cyberpunk dystopia, you know, it's an authoritarian government surveillance state uh, where everything is basically poor and shitty, uh, like modern-day cities. Right, America. right. So then... And he got deleted from the surveillance system. No record of his digital identity exists anymore. Uh, and that's why uh, he was found as a rotting, unidentified corpse, because when he died, no alarms went off. No EMS was dispatched. It, it, it happened to be his landlady 
days later noticed uh, this. This is like a real American city. Well, I don't think that would happen in New York. I'm not sure if corpses would actually worsen the smell of the streets, but you know. So with that, then, I mean, you've already drawn parallels to modern life, and I just have two for comedic purposes. But, you know, that begs the question there. Is your book meant to be a societal critique of modern American life? Aspects certainly are, because when I, when I try and build the city, like a lot of the life in the city comes down to me asking questions, like when I'm building a city of like, well, if there's a billion people in this city, what do they do for work? How do they get the food and so on? Like, what do they do for entertainment? And trapped in a city in the future as uh, technology, particularly for, for virtual reality has improved, generally the answer I came to for what do people do for entertainment is escape into video games and drink and do drugs. Neither of which particularly build you out of poverty, they just allow you to survive poverty. So that's part of what I'm depicting is just a lower class in the city that through their own actions aren't exactly getting out of it, not that the government would right, let them in right. Well, I mean, that was one thing that did really stick out to me in the book is the description of just social decay. And obviously, you know, cyberpunk is a growing genre and your book fits quite neatly into that as insofar as it is a genre rather than a style. But you focused very strongly, I remember, on showing viscerally the effects of poverty, both, you know, on people's health, their appearance, but as well as on somebody's psyche, like the kind of person who does find escapism in games because their life is just so shit. Well, it's good to hear that that came across well. That's what I was going at. Um... Yeah, and on that topic, then, it reminded me very strongly of Ready Player One. I'll refrain from making comparisons because I don't like Ready Player One, and I think nostalgia panning to the 80s is kind of pathetic, but, you know, people are millennials, myself included. You know, he did it well, though. I will say the book Ready Player One, yeah, it's nostalgia baiting. I kind of liked it. Yeah, I know you liked it. The movie was pretty I, I know you liked it because I, I see the exact same escape into VR in Ready Player One as I do in your book. Well, I think it, wanting to escape into video games, it, it's not like I took inspiration from Ready Player One. No more than you could say, because like Sword Art Online from 10 years ago became a worldwide phenomenon. It, even though it's like allegedly a trap and a death game and they're fighting for their lives, man. But like, who watched Sword Art Online and didn't go, man, it'd be really cool to be in the video game jumping around with super high stats playing monsters. And, it, was, it was a fuck-ass you know. terrible game. Like you, you look at the mechanics of that thing, it'd be shit to play. I mean, just look at the interface for Sword Art Online. It's like little boxes you scroll through. You have to open each one individually. That doesn't work from an, an MMO. You need all your abilities and your items on screen and immediately accessible. I mean, it's also VR, so how do you even hotkey anything? All right, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. A lot of the, that particular genre that's coming out of Japan and Korea right now, uh, they're based on the MMOs that are popular over there, which is why you get things like Hidden Pieces is a, always a huge plot point for stories like right, Overbeard right. or something. Um, and that just would never be popular in America. 
But hey, it could be worse. We could be looking at uh, Diablo Immortal. That would be a harrowing and depressing hellscape of reality. I mean, shit, that, that's like on the road levels of depressing stuff. But returning then to the topic of your game, who would you admit then are your influences? What inspired you to write this? So generally, this is a pretty dense mix of various influences. I do have anime influences like uh, Flame, the manga series about uh, killing Fantastic. trapped in the megastructure. I think it's one of the most visually evocative series that I've ever read. If you count it as reading, it's kind of no dialogue ever. There's I mean, you look at words it, and blank. the pages are so detailed that it takes you the same time to look at one as it does to read a legitimately good manga with words. Often longer. <laughs> you, can, you can get absorbed in the depiction of, you know, the dug out Jupiter void uh, that Killy has to walk across. Yeah, that, that was a really striking scene. I remember something similar with Made in Abyss, which is one of my favorite mangas. Is sometimes, you know, you just look at like the landscape panels, especially in, you know, the, the city of the unreturned at the, towards the conclusion. Just take in the weirdness. It was fantastic non-visual storytelling. You must be excited for season two then. I did not actually enjoy the anime much. Oh, interesting. I actually, so I struggle with Bane Abyss because I, I just kind of got repulsed by the idea of sending children to uh, go die. That, that was one of my favorite parts, actually. Enjoy the lollycon. Yeah. That, that I find be kind of bad taste, but you know, just the, you know, the non-sexual suffering, that was a very interesting and well played out. People say that? I, I, I'm struggling with it. I, I can respect the craft quality of Made in Abyss and the animation quality and the fact that everyone says it's really good. But I, I struggle with watching kids march uh, to their death. Yeah, yeah, I think that that is a, a normal human response to that happening. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, going back to my influences, like Flame, uh, Ghost in the Shell, anime like that for a lot of the visual aspect, you know, part of it in my earlier days, like my the first time I wrote in Bastion, it was almost reverse engineered from my hatred of Sword Art Online, because the first story I wrote in this setting uh, had to deal with people getting trapped in a VR system. I had to build backwards to justify it until I had like the whole city built. And I was like, oh, wait. Yeah, I've been there with writing. You have a good idea, and then the problem is you have a better one. Yep. Uh, and obviously I've mixed in a lot of real-life elements, the politics of the place, the uh, the decay of personal rights, like privacy, is the big focus in Faceless. And obviously his wife. His wife is a, like, middling, like, on the cusp of success video game streamer. He's in that realm of, like, almost breaking through and making a lot of money, but not quite, but close enough that she can't let it go. And that's why the two of them are fighting all the time. And well, I watch streamers and I will pull up, you know, clips and playlists of people playing various games. Yeah, I don't feel like same. immediately playing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like from my perspective, there's some games which aren't really worth playing more than once, in which case, unless they're, you know, fucking phenomenal games, they usually aren't. Why play them yourself? Why not just get somebody with, you know, charisma or, you know, big boobs to play them for you? 
or both. Presuming that exists, I haven't found it yet, but presuming. What? Are you not a fan of uh, the Hollow Live girls? No, I just. It, it hits right in the middle of the uncanny valley to me. Like, shittier VTubers, Tonkatsu Sinclair is one of my favorite. That I can watch because it, it's very obviously, you know, not real. But the, the Hololive ones are so, you know, fleshed out and humanized that it gets into this uncanny valley space for me of, it's not a person, but it wants so badly to be treated like its own person instead of some guy behind a mask animating it. That it just bugs me. That and they're all... They're just not good waifus. Well, that's a matter of personal taste. However, uh, ever since I saw Netflix roll out their own VTuber to advertise their anime collection a few years ago, that one thing is why all the corporations and Bastion basically have VTubers as their PR I was just going to ask, why the hell is that? Because I thought it was, you know, inspired by the, the Wendy's Twitter things, or the Sam of Samsung. Partly, yep. Yeah, it's just the evolution. It's going all the way to having a character that at times is almost certainly controlled by a lawyer back at headquarters. Yeah. Each corporation now has a waifu. Uh, corporate corruption is something, quote, beautiful. It's certainly something I did not expect 10 years back to be seeing, you know, this Wendy Spatz on Twitter, the, you know, their big boob anime girl. Our current culture has found itself in a great deal of tension over uh, left-wing puritanicals that don't want anything sexualized, but also left-wing degenerates that want everything sexualized. And it's not clear who's going to win because sex yeah. sells. I, I found this to be like the weirdest thing with the, you know, the left eating itself alive. I mean, people on the right, we can at least briefly collaborate. It's usually bad optics because the Nazis or whatever your country's version of Nazis are, they speak very loudly. But, you know, people can come together and put aside small things like who to kill. But, you know, on the left, they always do this. I kind of want the perverts to win because it'll be fun anime, but I also don't want them to win because they're somehow even bigger assholes when you talk to them than the Puritans are. Well... I am solidly on the side of don't censor things, don't censor anything. So in that respect, I want the pervert degenerates to win. There are times where I question if that's the right decision, though. I mean, yeah, it's just like you, you run into some of them online and they're legitimately sounding like a different human species. Human in dramatic quotation marks, because they're always talking about, you know, how fucking horny they are. And I'm thinking like, dude, don't you have other interests? Do you not, you know, play golf or cook food? Is there just nothing? You know, for a lot of people, the answer there is no. Just as, as a personal experiment, when you meet someone, try and figure out if they have a hobby. It's probably, their hobby is typically, like, I would say for a third of people I've met, the hobby is watching Netflix and jerking off. That's not a hobby. That's an addiction. Well, they don't know, like, that's their answer to the question of what's your hobby. Yeah, and people who are ashamed to admit it's watching Netflix and jerking off just say, I don't really have the time for hobbies, I just sleep. Yeah, and, and you whack off to Pornhub before you do. Yeah. Yep. Or, you know, there's people who are like, oh, I, I like to draw. Oh, really? When's the last time you drew? Can you show me something? Oh, uh, it's been a few months. Yeah. It, it, like, writers. 
you and I both know tons of writers that haven't written in weeks to months to possibly a year, but they'll still tell people their hobby is writing. Yeah, because I mean, it, it's a cope at that point. It's an identity. It's like, you know, you put your shoes on, you put your writer label on, and then suddenly people are supposed to respect you because you can put fucking words on a page. Well, when you're trying to get the respect of people who only watch Netflix and jerk off, putting words on a page is respectable. It's not even scraping the bottom of the barrel. It's at this point, respect has been dug through the barrel itself. But anyway, back to the interview. With these waifus you have for each corporation, I'm presuming your workers are like paid in script, right? They're not paid in, you know, real money. The people who live at Aqua, the people who live at Phoenix. Uh, so the one of the concepts of the megacity is that the corporations basically bring everything in-house. Uh, like, I think they're called like Rami blocks at one point if, the, if you're working for the Romulus Corporation. Because uh, that's a playoff. Yeah, you've got blocks. company housing. Um, well, it's more than company housing. It's also the company bar, the company grocery store. The, you know, the way that uh, coal mines used to be ran, uh, which is presumably why you're asking about are the game paid yes. script. Uh, going to get into that in Faceless or you have an answer? I think the answer is more it's like a membership program where they get discounts. And then if it's enough of a discount, why would you go elsewhere? And then I almost don't even think that's a bad thing if you're doing it fairly, because when you're talking about a billion people in a city, people are still going to want the small town life and connection and small. Yeah, that's size, why you have suburbs, which is just a more natural state for humans. Yeah, no, the, the real reason I was asking is like, if you accumulate enough script, can you buy official rule 34 of the company avatar? <laughs> My answer to that would be, I don't know about official, but most of the corporations would not have the power to prevent it from existing. However, in uh, one of my other books in Bastion, it is confirmed that there is no Rule 34 of Eve because she does have the power to remove every trace of it. Okay, so for reference, who is Eve and why are people making Rule 34 of her? Because Eve is the very attractive female artificial intelligence that rules the city. Benevolently, for the most part. Uh, she is government-owned, quote-unquote, uh, in that the system administrators that do maintenance on her and her subsystems and created uh, machines are all government employees that are appointed by Congress. And uh, in effect, she actually writes most of the laws because con even today, congressmen don't really they're not the ones that write their laws. They get uh, lawyers and staffers to write it, and they just endorse it. The extension to that is you have one AI that crunches the numbers on how to optimize, you know, the electric plan for the city, and the congressmen just sign off on it. And they pat themselves on the back that they're doing a good job maintaining the city because they are allowing the AI to do it. So if the AI is doing it, then why is the city filled with, you know, destructive pollution and dictatorial waifus and crime and all of this. Why are people poor? Because uh, if you put a billion people into a city, uh, you are simply going to get stratification of wealth inequality from the Pareto principle. A, a big part of it is if you don't qualify for the military draft, 
uh, which is compulsory, like in uh, South Korea. If you are too fat and stupid and or stupid to make the cut for military service, all the companies look at you as if you're useless because it's not actually that hard to do your military service. Uh, and if you weren't able to do that, then why would they hire you to do a, a well-paying job? So just boom, at 18, even if, even if the reason was you're incompatible with the vaccine to go outside, if you didn't make the cut, you're not, you're not allowed to, to work a job that will get you out of poverty. Right, no one right. Will hire you. I mean, we actually saw a similar thing in my home country, uh, South Africa, uh, during the apartheid era, which amusingly, I keep seeing, I think, unintentional parallels to in, in Faceless, where they'd use the question of military service even after the National Party regime ended and the white supremacist government structures were removed, is you'd still have, like, being a park ranger, any sort of security guard, did you do military service? And that was a way they effectively used to filter out any, you know, weedy white guys or just any non-white people from applying because they'd say, oh, sorry, dude, you're colored, so obviously you didn't do military service and obviously you're not going to apply for it now because... That didn't like really change the army structure until 2008. But speaking of that, why do you need a vaccine to go outside? Oh, because there's a plague outside. There's a plague outside. So what, nobody lives outside? Uh, there is exactly one colony of people that uh, have natural immunity. And they live uh, in basically the upper peninsula of Michigan. Except the, the states aren't really states anymore because... Either you live in Bastion or you live on uh, the Californian coast because shipping requirements, uh, or you are these people living in the island. Right. So that's the island. Uh, and, you know, just like the Black Death, there is a subset of any population that will be flat out immune to a disease. And they keep breeding with one another, they'll pass it on. So they, they don't have to worry about it. But the survivors in Bastion need a vaccine. And also, it's Okay, so this is then the Caesar. That's the plague. Czar is a derivative from the plague. One of the uh, neurotransmitters that the disease uses to uh, modify behavior and make you destructive. And this gets you high. That one does, yes. Give me just a moment to go let my dog in. Two hours later. So Czar is, it, it's a great drug, like based on the symptoms of the high it gives you, quite addictive. Uh, but the problem is, uh, according to the government, if it's produced incorrectly, you can end up shooting up or ingesting like the live virus and causing an outbreak in a city with a population density of Mumbai. So there is a zero tolerance policy for it. Right, right. That's pretty hardcore stuff, man. And yeah, it's uh that that's actually a big focus in the sequel to Faceless, because uh I, I have the next book written. It's getting edited right now, and I hope it'll come out uh around New Year's. Uh, and the, the one of the big premises of the sequel is Detective Blackstone is hunting down a criminal who is trying to escape the city. Uh, the problem is he's a 17-year-old. He hasn't even been screened for military service yet, so he hasn't gotten the vaccine. So he has to go basically steal a vial of the stuff and inject it into himself uh, so that he doesn't just die for walking outside of the city. 
Okay. And the uh, okay. the politics of the drugs and the vaccine control and government bureaucracy brings the whole story to a very fun climax. Well, given the last three years, I'll be interested to see what you comment on there. <laughs> uh, it's actually backwards. I'm not. I'm not pushing anti-vax uh, hysteria with these books. Just. You won't be disappointed, though, let's put it that way. On a similar topic, then, how big is Bastion? Because you said it has a billion people and the population of uh, the population density. Uh, if I remember the math correctly, it is a circle with a 50 kilometer radius, 80 stories tall. Well, that's, that's fucking huge. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, larger than some states right now. Yeah, yeah, big, bigger than the, you know, the little states like uh, Connecticut and Rhode Island, definitely. The idea is it's after the pandemic basically caused the end of the world, uh, but it's so far after that that we're actually at a higher population level despite that. It's just that there was a huge societal restructuring because the population was brought so low. Um, right, right. So then what does the, the draft and the army do in Bastion? Because... From the way it was portrayed, yeah, it's a it's a cop story, but it seems like the police do ninety percent of the work in enforcing. In the city, yeah, most people serving are are outside of the city. The quintessential one is guarding the machines that farm the crops, uh, because there are things that need to be shot out there. To put it simply, it's mostly bullshit occupation work, though. Uh, because the, the, the big threat is another world war conflagration with United Asiatic Armed Forces who are basically doing the same thing. They keep an army because, we, because Bastion has an army. Okay, okay. So I, I thought the crops were grown inside the city because we encounter a sewage treatment and hydroponics at one point. And there's a pretty thrilling chase scene through it. Yep. Uh, I did the math. There is not nearly enough space in a city to feed the city. It, it just, you can't have that population density and grow the food in there. Even if you're all eating zeebugs and living off of gruel protein paste excreted by bacteria, uh, it can supplement the food. And, you know, it, it can be a great way to clean up all the sewage that one billion people are producing. You do need to go outside to fields and, you know, grow cereal uh, crops. You know, you need corn, you need wheat, you need rice. Uh, the, the population would starve otherwise. Right. Okay. Okay. And so then I, I presume that people must also like have private gardens in the setup, because I recall in the book that the protagonist wanders into a rustic Italian restaurant at some point and is served genuine homegrown food yes but it's rare and it's hard and people don't typically sell that uh their homegrown food because if they went to the effort of growing it they're damn well keeping it uh, but that's what made the uh the restaurant uh you know so intoxicating to them yeah you get a bowl of real minestrone after eating you know tofu and whiskey for the last 20 years sounds pretty good and so as well as that with the game in Faceless, because a central arc of your story is that the protagonist has to play through an entire VR game with zero experience doing VR stuff. Yeah, so the, uh, the John Doe, discovered in Chapter 1 of the book, was developing a VR game. 
and pretty quickly in the story, uh, because the surveillance system doesn't know who the guy is, uh, and he can't find any ID on the guy or anything, uh, Detective Boxstone basically goes, well, there's, there's two obvious ways to get the guy's identity. One is pulling medical records, which are stored independently. That'll take a while. Uh, or I can find just his credits in the game. The problem is, yeah, he realizes he has to beat the game to get to the credit sequence, which he, he resists as much as he possibly can doing, because he does not like VR games. Because his primary uh, interaction with them is through his wife. I see. Okay. And do you think we might have VR games like that in the... Well, I think Bastion is set in like 2150, but, you know, give or take 100 years. Could we have VR games then that interface directly with your brain and skip, you know, all the external goggles and hands? I 100% believe we are going to eventually get uh, Matrix-style virtual reality. You know... I'm hopeful that uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink will get get us that in our lifetime. Okay, okay, that could be fun. Be some pretty He's fascinating scary. Call of Duty spinoffs. Uh, I think you're actually in our lifetime. We're probably going to see a lot of very strange censorship laws that get pushed on these things once the experience gets too, quote too real. And that's going to be a whole new form of culture war. But honestly, in twenty one forty. The government just kind of lets people do whatever they want because no matter what the person's doing, they have the government is not in threat of losing their control. Yeah, if it gets serious, you know, just drop a spider robot on them. Pretty much. That was another thing I wanted to ask about is, so this is a book from the perspective of the police. And not only is the protagonist a cop, but many of the other important characters, I believe especially the police chief, are as well. But aren't you concerned that they might give you know, a somewhat biased view of Bastion? Because you're always looking at them sort of when they're jumping in to save the day. Because that's what the protagonist does. You're not looking at all the, you know, asshole cops out there. Well, Elliot is a good guy. I think you would agree with that after reading the book. I would. Uh, so, I do understand that if it was only ever, you know, the military police uh, cracking down on criminals, that would create a very specific view of the city. And there are two things that I'm going to do for that. And one is in the sequel, uh, one, about one third of the chapters are from the perspective of the criminal he's hunting. And I'm going to start doing that from now on. Uh, I think it'll, it'll make the book slightly longer, but that's not a problem. Um, it okay. strengthens okay. the story to see basically the protagonist and the antagonist and what they're, how they're interacting with each other. Additionally, I'm going to write uh, just different stories in Bastion of different people doing different things. I see. So, yeah, because I was very much interested in that. And one thing, you know, your idea reminds me of now is the Parker series by Richard Stark. Have you ever come across that? I have not. Please tell me. Very good series. Highly recommend. It's uh, crime fiction set in the 20th century. You know, the time period updates to whenever Stark is writing them. Hmm. And it's about this guy, Parker, who is a professional criminal. And he specializes in heists. So each book discusses one heist he's going to pull off. But a gimmick of the series is that a third of the book, or yeah, a third to a quarter, is from the perspective of other characters. 
And so often, you know, this is the cops who are hunting Parker, but sometimes it's the mafia that Parker is fighting, or it's other criminals, or other antagonists or minor protagonists in the world. And it, it's very enjoyable because Parker himself doesn't really have a personality. He's just the guy who does badass things. And then, so you go through that, and just as Parker's about to set it up and go, you see how are people reacting to everything he's done so far in the book? What are people doing and planning to stop him? How are his allies helping him? Or even just what are the implications of all the mayhem he's been causing so far? You know, it sounds really good. You, yeah. should, you should send me the, uh, the name to that. Unfortunately, you've already screwed up my reading backlog. I, I've got this book, uh, it's called Sociopath, that's sitting in front of me right now because i got to read that next. Oh, you poor bastard. Yeah, you're, you're really punishing me right now, making me read this. Hmm. Yeah, I know. It was almost like I had to just white-nail my way through this weirdo cyberpunk novel. <laughs> oh. But yeah, you also had me yeah. listening to Bronze Age Mindset because of an earlier episode on here. You actually listened to Bronze Age Mindset. How was it? I'm not, I'm not done with it. I'm like an hour and a half into a six-hour audiobook. I, I feel like I almost need to listen to the whole thing, then watch your podcast, and then find other, like, cliff notes on it to review, because it's a bit rambly. Yeah, no, that was one of my major complaints with it. Granted, I didn't agree with Bap's philosophy at the time, and I don't now for slightly different reasons. But, yeah, the book just needed a professional edit. I know, like, a lot of people, you know, especially on the chans, will say, Ah, but, you know, the rambly style and the shitty punctuation and, and the liberal quotations of it adds to their appeal. No, it doesn't. It makes the book worse. It makes the book shit because not only is it just cheap shock horror, but it's really irritating to go through because you can't tell when he's making an argument who is just trying to annoy you. I, I will say, though, that I think the urge to grow uh, and you know, become better, better than other people specifically, uh, which is a bit, almost a bit tangential to his point, though, but I think that's actually driving a lot of the uh, book market right now, because uh, you can, like, that, that's the entire reason that Isekai is popular, is because it's a power fantasy nine times out of ten, and it appeals to that urge yeah. of, I want to become better than other people. Yeah, same with the, uh, you know, cultivation web novels. It's this urge to flex, the will to power, you could say. Yeah, yeah it's almost like somebody else had this idea before him and phrased it better. Possibly. I think that's probably correct. But that just means that both of them are talking about something quite true. Yeah, unfortunately, Elliot doesn't really grow in this story, and that's kind of left me going, hmm. But that's why I write in multiple genres. Because, you know, a, a detective looking into a strange uh, crime case appeals more to discovery, mystery, a sense, you know, a desire for justice. Uh, and, you know, if I made you care about him, you should care about uh, his failing romance with his wife because you should want them to either break it off or make amends. Uh, but becoming better than other people is, is kind of lost in Faceless. Not really something I was able yeah, to I think, do. Yeah, and you're also, you know, trapped in the cyberpunk dystopia where the idea is you can't get out of it, you can't improve. 
I don't. I think Bastion can handle that. I, I think uh, after I release a couple of the Blackstone books, I will have been able to like build up the the world enough that I can then dive in on. You know, here's someone who is breaking out from the bottom and rising to the top. Okay. So okay. that that's a project for the future. Right. And, and speaking of projects, I notice you're also a prolific web novel author, most notably. Uh, Undying Emperor. Yeah, yeah, I really that on Royal Road right now. Yeah, so I mean, I see you selling faces on Amazon. You can read it for free if you have Kindle Unlimited, which is what I did. I presume you get some form of currency off this. But you are also then selling more books in the series. So what do you then think about programs and platforms like Real Road? Do you think Royal Road is a viable way to write? Uh, I look at Royal Road as marketing. Uh, and it's also an outlet for the volume of writing I do, which currently outpaces my capacity to get edits and critique and beta readers. Like, I do get edits and critiques and beta readers and so on for the books I'm putting up for sale, and that pushes them to a higher quality. Uh, but at the okay. amount that I okay. write, you know, sometimes I just want to write a story and put it out there and the idea is that if i get a following on a site like royal road or wattpad or something i am directly appealing to people who already like my writing and i go if you like the writing i've got this on amazon i've got that you can you can go buy a book from me which is actually at a higher standard than what you're getting here it's just a different genre because undying emperor is like epic fantasy world conquest stuff I see. Right. So it's same guy, but completely different focus. Okay. And then on a, you know, a similar topic there. One thing that I do want to ask about faceless and I haven't gotten to yet, because I'm just, you know, scrolling through the thread we posted on lit, which I would have replied to 90% of these comments, but then I was banned from 4chan. So <laughs> is there life extension technology in the world of Bastion? One Anon asks. You know, he kind of caught me there with a good question. So I was in that thread. I was reading, but I didn't want to answer stuff because, you know, that's the point of this call. Um, the medicinal treatments are significantly better. So, such as, like, you get shot. Uh, a paramedic is on the scene in a few minutes, uh, able to patch you up. Uh, so, people don't really die of injuries or disease until they're very old. It's also at a point where cybernetic prosthetics are a thing. Uh, okay, you can, okay. Replacing your own organs is a thing. I don't have an answer for lengthening telomeres, which is the, the fundamental reason that uh, old age is going to kill you is cell senescence. I think I might just say, so that the setting isn't completely alien to modern day, that they haven't beaten old age because... You know, once you hit 100 years old, your cells have replicated so many times that even if they can keep curing the cancer, you're going to keep getting cancer. I see. Okay. That's pretty so Average age is up, but I not credit... like 500 years. Right. Okay. Yeah, because I think, granted, I haven't read too much science fiction, but in my, my favorite science fiction series, Zeely Sequence by Stephen Baxter, he also discussed the same problem because anti-senescence is a major theme of his works. And 
it eventually he revealed that despite being a fairly competent physicist and doing a shitload of research in other fields, just had no fucking idea how people could do this, how to lengthen telomeres. So the final book in the main series actually explains this, and it involves a person from the future in which they'd already figured out how to lengthen telomeres, accidentally being sent back in time to the past to save the future, and was then captured by an exorcist and had their telomeres cut off and then replicated off basically their biology to lengthen telomeres for future anti-senescent technology. I don't know if that works or not, but the protagonist of the story was an actual monkey. So, you know. <laughs> that went significantly further into the weird territory than I was prepared for. Yeah, that's, that's my favorite thing about Zeely sequence books is you read them and you think, okay, okay, this could happen. And then you read it and think, this shouldn't happen. It's like the, the books run the gamut of, you know, child soldiers, alien invasions, actual fish hive minds, computers that run backwards in time. It, it's just like weird shit. There's no normal aliens. My, my favorite scene from the whole story is that this guy is kidnapped by the leader of the alien resistance to the third genocidal human empire. And he's, you know, he's just kicked around and he's brought before him and you know, the guy is in charge, the leader of the evil aliens is in charge because he's twice as big as all the rest and comes from the ancient past when the, the evil aliens were really, you know, trying to take over the world and fighting the civil war because the new ones are too peaceful to fight the humans. And it's just this humongous black sphere they call the black ghost because, it's, you know, it's black. And the guy realizes, you know, dude, I'm not scared of you. And he just punches it to death. And the rest of the, the ghosts, also spherical, just look on in horror and think, well, oh, fuck, man. We don't have arms, so we can't stop him punching this guy. Bro, what? That sounds like a reject anime plot. It might actually be a reject anime plot, now that I think of it. <laughs> okay. But returning to Faceless again, then. So you've told me there's going to be one about, you know, looking at the vaccines in your world and the plague and how the government works. But do you have any plans for additional stories? Because you said you've written a lot in the Bastion universe, yeah, but it so, hasn't been published yet. Uh, Black Sun is going to be one big chunk taking place in like the 2140s, 2130s. And I, I plan on a more higher action series of books about 10, 12 years later, uh, where young Dominic uh, from Faceless is the main character after he's gotten out of uh, military service. Right. That's right. going to focus more on like international politics and some of the uh, problems and so on with artificial intelligence uh, coming to a head and explosions and robots and people getting trapped in virtual reality. That kind of stuff okay. it will be in the future uh, after Blackstone has had his uh, course of stories. I see. Okay. And so for the books moving forward then, one Anon, obviously, you've got a couple of Anons in this thread tuning you for the cover art, which I thought, you know, it's fine. Did you do it yourself? No, no, I uh, hired an artist for that. Right. So they should be tuning the artist instead of you. I, I personally really hate covers that, like, oh, 
there's a lot of books that have that like cartoon. Uh, it looks like a comic, and they do that because it's cheap. I hate the look of it. Um, yes. There, there's also just like that uncanny valley level of cartoon realism is super common, which I also just do not aesthetically like the look of. So I went to an artist that had a more abstract style, uh, and to be honest, I like the rest of his portfolio better than what he did for me for the cover. But I worked with what I got. I've got slightly different I mean, ideas direction going for uh, my next book coming out. Figuring it out. All right. Okay. Okay, I, I can put you in touch with a few people. Like, same for, you know, anyone watching at home and or workplace and or as I actually knew somebody who did the middle of a dance floor, like he would just put in his AirPods and flail his arms around in an attempt to dance and just listen to podcasts or readings of fan fiction. He was not even the weirdest fucker I've ever met, but he was up there. But my point is that, yeah, I, I can put you in touch with some uh, graphic artists, the people who did the cover of Sociopath, only redeeming factor of the book, never read it. Um, yeah, you know, that's the essence of networking is getting, is getting in contact with people that are, uh, in possession of the skills you need. That it is. Have anything else to say on, you know, networking? Cause I mean, I've been on a couple of your discord servers before and you do a lot of work in conjunction with other people like criticism, like editing. Do you say that's then a major part of why we see that face? This is actually out there. Oh, uh, well, Yeah. Part of it is because I got in contact with other authors and shopped it around, and uh, the criticism I was getting back had morphed from, hey, this needs work, to, hey, this is really good. And being an author has been my dream since I was a little tiny kid. Uh, you know, getting a job and to make money was incidental. So I, I got to the point, because of encouragement from other people, to put the book out there, and now I'm trying to release my second book, and uh, there's a lot of people that are in the same situation are trying to build an audience uh, from the ground up, such as the Unreal Press Studio here, uh, gaining subscribers every day. True, true. Yeah, I mean, congrats. It is an accomplishment to put a book out there, and it's also an accomplishment to put a book out there that's still good after people pay money for it. Because, you know, I found that a lot of people, you, you show them some writing and they say, oh, oh man, LA, that's lovely, that's lovely. And, and then you ask, okay, to read the rest, you have to pay me money. And they say, fuck off. But I enjoyed your book. I mean, I pay for a Kindle Unlimited subscription, so I did pay money for it. And yeah, I gave it five stars. And if you weren't my friend, I would have given it four and a half. So yeah, congrats. Well, I hope I can interest you in reading the, uh, the next book I'm putting out, The Fools, a almost military science fiction survival story, I'll call it. Military sci-fi survival. Yeah. So basically, a military super soldier, quote unquote, air quotes, after the war, uh, is on a space station. They get attacked, and he is trapped on a refugee ship that is falling into chaos. Well, then. That sounds pretty hectic. I thought the next book you said you were going to put out would be the sequel to Faceless, but this sounds like it's in a different continuity. Oh, uh, it's a thousand years in the future. It, it is canon with uh, the Bastion setting, but it, it's far enough out there that it's at a stage where humanity is, has conquered faster than light travel. They've colonized hundreds of planets. 
and a very, very nasty interplanetary war broke out over uh, genetic engineering. Right. Okay. So we're going to see like another guy called Blackstone in Ship of Fools. Oh, no, he's not called Blackstone. Right. Then I, w- I would do that. I I just give everyone the same name. Let people do the math on whether or not it's oh, the same I'm doing something like that because what you may what you should have noticed in Faceless is Elliot isn't his real first name. Yes, this was brought up multiple times. His badge number that he uses. Yeah, it's his call sign. Yeah. So in book two, uh, he uh, will have a partner that he's working with because uh, basically the scope of the story is bigger. And what I'm planning to do is once later in the series, when he gets promoted and he's no longer an E-rank officer after getting busted down for killing people, he'll go up to D-rank and his partner is going to come up to E-rank, which he was, and he's going to pass on the uh, the call sign to them. Uh, His partner will be Elliot. He's going to get super confusing because there will be a different Detective Elliot depending on which book you're in. Okay. And so what? Elliot gets promoted, and then what? He's just Elliot? I'll I'll have to figure out what the the D name is. But yeah, you'd have a different first name. But he'd still be Blackstone. Blackstone is his last name. Right, right. And and so another question then from the thread is, the monster in the VR game, which the current detective Elliot Blackstone must kill, is a Kraken. And I notice your name is James Crake. So if, if I put an N in there somewhere, is this like some allegory for, you know, the protagonist must overcome the author and take power to lead the own story, or is this just a coincidence? Completely coincidental, unfortunately. Although I do think it would be fun to, uh, once I'm making enough money to justify stupid graphics art purchases, I wanted to uh, theme my website about like Krakens and in the deep and dredging up stories and stuff. Eventually, we'll see James Kraken. <laughs> buy my books and tell your friends to buy my books, and yes, you will. Oh, okay, friends. The remaining few I have not yet driven off buy his books. So, right. Do you have any advice for other authors? Because one thing I've seen and which makes you different from a lot of other people I've had on this podcast so far is you are a professional writer. This is what you're working at. Everything else is secondary. Whereas a lot of people like myself, you know, we have day jobs, we have side hustles. So what would you then think, you know, is good advice for somebody who does want to write full time and write fiction full time? Well, don't oversell me. I do have a day job that pays the bills. My goal is full-time with the writing, which is why I'm trying to put out, like, four books every year in addition to the web novel. Um, and the the plan is to build an audience, like, exponentially. And if that takes a while, it takes a while, but whatever. If you want to be good at writing, I don't understand why this is controversial to say, but every time I tell people this is how you become good at writing, they say I'm wrong, and they say, oh, I don't have time to do that, but the trick is reading. Read good stories. Look at the story critically and go, why is this good? And don't read strictly fiction. About half of what I consume is nonfiction. I read history books, philosophy, uh, biographies. I sit on YouTube binges about breakthroughs in nuclear fusion technology, 
you know, I, I go down rabbit holes on how does uh, natural language processing artificial intelligence work. And I, I research whatever catches my fancy because I never know what will be useful. And more information I jam into my brain, the richer a world I can create in the story. And by doing that, I've gotten to a point where I don't really worry about the setting because I, I can bullshit my way through a setting, which means the only thing I'm concerned about with my writing is good characters. And that's the essence of, of a compelling read is getting people engaged with a character. Okay. Okay. Sounds, sounds pretty good. I, yeah, it's, that is one thing I've noticed that you find a lot of people who demand, oh, you must get better by writing, by writing, you know, X, Y, Z words per day. You will have to go to this workshop and well, you've you got to read, read these books. You need to write. And I, I write 2,000 words every day. Yeah, obviously you have to practice. How many words? Craft workshop, I find to be How many words the day? most unreliable way of getting better. Very often it is someone just pushing their idea onto you. And, well, you know, let's say it's like a... Even if it's like a, a New York Times bestseller, like if you got, he's dead now, but if you had Michael Crichton teach you how to write a best-selling novel, the problem is he wrote his books 20 to 30 years ago. Reader expectations are different now. Like the, the advice that you'd be paying to get is not the correct advice. Like it gets very obvious when people start talking about marketing of like, oh, you need, you know, the most important thing is a mailing list. Who under the age of 30 joins a fucking mailing list? Who looks at their inbox? I mean, I look at my inbox, but that's only because I have to do that for work. I don't creatively refresh my email address. I have a mailing list. Some people use it. It's not hard to, to you know, set one up and have people sign up for it, which, by the way, if you go to my website, jamescrite.com, you'll be prompted to join my mailing list so you can find out when I'm releasing new stories, such as Ship of Fools, for completely free. I won't spam you, I swear. But the reason I'm co-hosting so many episodes with you on YouTube is because the way people get the word out in marketing is YouTube and TikTok and social media it's memes is the correct way to advertise nowadays. You talk to someone about like buying Amazon ads, they'll just tell you that they're burning money because they're competing with publishing houses. Yeah, I've done that. Like, even when you could still advertise on 4chan, I made my money back barely. By the way, 4chan ads might be recovering because of the crypto crash. I'm taking a guess that those, uh, you know, the various rug pulls aren't paying to advertise as much anymore. There was, what, a 50% correction? Yeah, could work, could work. I mean, granted, I, I thought you sort of wound up as my honorary co-host because we had a good rapport and we enjoyed each other's company. But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy to actually meme your know, books here, too. Well, we do. I do enjoy doing these. But the, the utility is in uh, reach. This is work. You, you should know that better than anyone since you're the one that does Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I can just sit and talk and ramble all day. This is recreational for me. But when you, when you sober up the next day and you think, oh, fuck, now I have to edit audio. That's not work. That's an argument for suicide. But speaking of editing, do you have any tips for that? Because, again, you use... Which is to get editing from other people, but how can you know that then that's reliable? I find often with editing from other people, 
especially if it's online, they just edit according to their preferences. They don't edit according uh, to anything objective. Editing is a shit show. In my opinion, the most reliable thing genuinely is read your story aloud. Uh, hear it back. Maybe try a text-to-speech program to read it to you and you listen. Because your ear will fix the mistakes. It won't necessarily catch punctuation. Particularly if you're at, like, the semi-pro level, like people on 4chan are, like the amateur level. Uh, that's why you also have to be wary about beta reader feedback. The person giving advice is very often pushing their misconceptions onto you. That, that can directly make your writing right, worse. Right. Okay, so like take beta reading pinch of salt and just trust after you know, you know you're decent. Read it out loud and that'll fix it. Then how do you edit for things like, you know, plot or even the pacing of an entire scene? That's something that's pretty difficult to catch just based on auditory input. So there's some craft theory on how to do that that I'm trying to get better at because... Uh, Particularly on the second draft, if you look at a chapter, a chapter should reveal something or have something happen that gets the story closer to conclusion. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but it has to be something. Uh, and often, like, the author will know what they're trying to do with the chapter, but they're not signaling that's what it is. Um, like, I, I was just reading uh, a friend's chapter that he submitted to a workshop and he's writing this fantastic like dark fantasy uh huge epic scale about a country completely deceived by their own faith and it's great with some issues though because he wrote this one chapter about a farmer who's trying to like avoid having problems happen to his happy little family which is great conflict and he he a few times notes okay. that, ooh, there's this weird, sick goat that shouldn't be there. Like, it reads like rabies, but I assume it's like a magic variant of it. And the character a couple times says, I need to go take care of that, but I need to get the kids away first. So he's almost doing it correct. He just literally, like, at one point the character forgets about the goat. And when the character forgets about the goat, the reader forgets where the chapter is going. Uh, and that's how you find that pacing slows to a crawl is because the reader goes, but what about the goat? Why is he trying to have sex with his wife right now? What about the goat? You told me to care about the goat. Whereas if he was just in thinking back of his mind, oh man, that goat though. <laughs> Which I guess sounds really weird when juxtaposed that way. But it, as long as... The point of the chapter, a.k.a. the reveal about how, what is this sick animal and how did it get there, you have to keep reminding the, the reader that you're getting there. And the pacing will, will come across fine. I see. Okay. So it's just keep on focus, make your goal clear to the reader. That's the, the main idea You need to maintain anticipation of what is going to happen. And you can still surprise people. In fact, you should surprise people. But the, the reader needs to have a guess of what's going to happen next, because the only thing that keeps people reading a book is wanting to know something. It can be, knock, knock, who's on, oh, that's a cliffhanger, who's at the door? Let me turn the page and start the next chapter. But if there's nothing there for the, the character, to, for the reader to read about, why do they keep going? Now, I'm not perfect at plotting a book. 
I, I think the biggest criticism in Faceless is that uh, you'd probably agree the high point, the tension, the excitement is in the middle of the book when he's in a shootout uh, in the sewage plantation, right? FBI, open up! Oh no, did you get banned again? They come, did they kill your internet? LA is MIA, so I'm just going to continue my point. Assuming that's true, that that is the high point, because that's the, the action sequence. The problem is that's not the conclusion of the story. And when the, my, the conclusion of my story gets compared to what they've seen me do before, it seems that I don't have a proper rising action to the climax that, that resolves, and then you get some uh, resolution. Which is a mistake. I should have found a way to do that better, and I came to that conclusion after releasing and after getting feedback. And my future books are better. I've, I've learned from that and fixed it. There's always room for improvement. And I now have to wrap this up without L.A. So, L.A., when you're listening to this in audio editing, thanks for having me on. I'm glad you enjoyed my book. I'm always happy to come on this, the show with you. I think we make some pretty good episodes. I look forward to reading your book, Sociopath. In the meantime, listener, if you've been enjoying uh, the talk here, if you think my book is interesting, the title is Faceless, Bastion Blackstone, Book One by James Craig. You can find it on Amazon and all of its competitors. Or you can check out my website, jamescraig.com. It has links to my books, it has links to my web novels. And pretty soon it's going to have some more content, so keep an eye out for that.